Those teachings are available in writing in the Bhagavad Gita and other books which may not as be well known to some called Srimad Bhagavatam. And he also, as his name indicates, Acharya, one who teaches by example, showed how to take up the practices of what's taught in the Bhagavad Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam and apply them in daily life. He also started centers around the world where people could live and fully concentrate on practicing Krishna consciousness and also studying the science so that they could teach it to other people. Well, this temple was founded in around 1999. Of course, it started in a small house on New Jersey Avenue in San Jose. <clears throat> and after getting numerous complaints from the neighbors who didn't think it was a good idea to have a church in somebody's house where a hundred cars would try to park every week, we moved into a storefront around the corner from that house. And after the landlord didn't think it was a good idea to have hundreds of cars during Krishna's birthday, he asked us also to leave. Then we got a small commercial building with a lease where the leasor thought it was a good idea to raise our rent as frequently as possible, keep a pit bull in the parking lot that chewed on our shoes, and sell marijuana as a side business from the numerous other businesses he ran on the lot. Nonetheless, we made do in those places over seven years, and the Krishna conscious community in San Jose increased considerably. And then another seven years ago, we moved into this place on of course, it's probably more than that, so I'm fudging the numbers. But on a Ram Nomi, we've moved into this place. And ha the community has continued to grow. So there are many practitioners here. Some, well, I would say all of them have jobs. Many of them have families. Yet the teachings of Bhagavad Gita are so accommodating that all the community members are able to practice Krishna consciousness and still go about their daily lives. No one that I know of so far has gone off to a cave or had to give up any of their possessions. They just had to reimagine what they're for and use them in service rather than just trying to hold them. Most assets we have are depreciable and don't hold well anyway. And ultimately, everything we have depreciates to nothing. So the smart individuals who take up Krishna consciousness know this. And there are s several practices that <clears throat> have been passed down over many generations. And they are <clears throat> useful for anyone, especially in such a busy time as this. Not only is it busy, but there's also a pervasive sense of disinterest in spiritual practice among many 
partly because there's not as much time for most people, and also because there's so many competing ideas. People get confused and discouraged. Therefore, 500 years ago, one of the avatars of Krishna named Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, or Sri Krishna Chaitanya, came to the earth, and he taught a practice that is universally powerful. doesn't matter where you're from, what culture. You can practice what he taught, and it's an active meditation by saying, repeating, or singing the names of God. And uh, one of the mantras that has been in the Vedas, in the Upanishads, since time immemorial, that he emphasized was a mantra called the Maha Mantra. And it goes, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Three words, Hare Krishna Rama. So Hare means, O energy of the Lord. Krishna means God, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who's all attractive. And Rama means the source of all pleasure. These are personal names of the Supreme. And they're very beautiful when they, they hit the ear. They can transform us because of their spiritual power, especially when they're passed down through a channel. Uh-oh. I think there's something sharp. It's too beautiful to take off, though. I don't mind. <laughs> that uh, transforms us from the inside out. Sometimes we get prescriptions of medicine from a doctor, and it just looks like a liquid or a white pill. And we're not exactly sure what's in it, but we do trust the doctor. At least I trust my doctor. I think he's the best doctor I ever met. And when he prescribes something and explains to me why it's a good idea, then I take it and the active ingredient does its work. So we can take the chanting on this basis, that it comes from a tradition of great acharyas or those who are sense controlled and highly learned and said, an impeccable example in their own lives. And also, it's in the ancient teachings that uh, are called the Vedas, which are known to people in the tradition as uh, self-luminous knowledge. And if someone just likes to sing, that's okay too. Because it's a very balanced mantra. It has 16 words and 32 syllables, so that balances out, right? Mathematicians, help me out here. So we can try it and sing this Hare Krishna mantra that's been recommended by not only Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, but all the great teachers of the practice of bhakti yoga. And right here in the middle of Mountain View, dead center, this is the dead center, just like Naimasharanya is the dead center of the universe, this is the dead center of Silicon Valley. Did you know that? Perfectly in the middle. So when we sing, we're not just singing for ourselves. We're singing for Apple and Google and Facebook, 
I hope I didn't leave anybody out. I did. Huh? Intel. <laughs> All our friends in the corporate world, uh, so that, that they're not in too much anxiety because Prabhupada, Srila Asi Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada said, when you chant the Hare Krishna Ma Mantra, it's not just for yourself, it's for others also because the vibration goes out and as an example, let's just say there's an ant somewhere enjoying this garland inside, smelling the nice flowers, and then we start singing. The ant will hear the mantra and maybe start dancing, I don't know, but it'll definitely get spiritual benefit. Also, the sound vibration goes around the earth seven times, Prabhupada said. So we can chant for others also, for their benefit. And Lots of devotees like to do this as their occupation. They like to go out and sing the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra in public places. And that way people who are just strolling along can hear the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra. And we notice sometimes that those who hear it become attracted to the mantra and it wakes up something within their hearts. They want to know more. They want to know how they can get involved, right? She heard it down in Palo Alto, came walking in. What is that mantra? I think she already knew, but she was attracted. And so we chant for ourselves and chant for others. That sounds like a good occupation, right? Because everyone likes to do good for others. So Chaitanya taught that if you like that kind of lifestyle where you're thinking about how to do good for others, he said, this is for you. Because... You can help others in the most substantial way, and that's spiritually. Because as I mentioned earlier, everything we have, including our bodies, is a depreciable asset. Any accountants in here? These are assets that depreciate. I hate those kind of, you put them on your books and next thing you know, they're worth less. That's not very nice. But with the spiritual practice, even if you invest a little bit, it'll increase. And it'll grow and grow, and then it'll make a facility f for us to rise above all the inequalities, the insufficiencies of this world. Are you convinced? Does it sound like a good idea? Yes. All right. Shall we try it? Yes. Okay. If you're willing, I'm willing. Let's try it. So this is called a yagya. Now, in earlier days... I mean way earlier, like thousands and millions of years ago. According to the histories, there was a culture. Now, how can you uh, <clears throat> trace the history of a culture or see its quality? There are signposts. One of them is language. So the culture that all the trappings you see here come from is called the Vedic culture. It's actually technically called Sanatan Dharma, or the kind of culture where people were most interested, put the most energy into feeding their souls rather than just their bodies or taking care of their hair. There, was a, there weren't as many hair products or nail salons at that time. So in Sanatan Dharma, one prioritizes and makes an equation. I only have so much time in this life, so what's the most important place that I can invest my energy, and that's in the soul. And 
out of such cultures, we can also look at the language. So the language that was spoken and written in, in the Vedic culture is called Sanskrit. It's the most refined of all languages. It's been perfected so much that there are no exceptions to rules like there are in English. And it's a uh, language that doesn't have any rough edges either. When you're combining different words, there are rules so that they flow together quite nicely. Uh, often people present an idea that cultures previously were primitive and then we became more sophisticated. But according to Srimad Bhagavatam, it's going the opposite way. And the Vedic culture is also rife, that's R-A-F-E, with uh, culture, arts, aesthetics, cooking, and dancing, and music. The musical genius of the time is apparent in classical Vedic or Indian music and so forth. So it's a rich culture that all this comes from. But the crown jewel of all of it is the spiritual aspect and the teachings through which one can absorb one's human intelligence and appreciating what's most important in life. So before the next section, I'll make a few points for our discussion. And you can be aware of anything that sticks in your mind, if you would kindly do that. Then uh, we can discuss it and expand on the topic. Main point for uh, yogis, those practicing yoga, means to control the mind. Because it's on account of the mind that we suffer. Also, part of that suffering process, which is also caused by the mind, is our wandering, transmigrating from one body to the next. Physical bodies, like the ones we have now, are troublesome because they're material and we're spiritual. And through the process of yoga, one can come to purify the mind. And when the mind's pure, it acts as an instrument through which we can see Krishna. And therefore, it's important in any yoga practice that we're careful to control the mind. In fact, in the Srimad Bhagavatam, we were just reading last night and this morning about how if you neglect the mind for long enough in letting it do what it wants, in other words, default mode of the mind, which is generally, if it's tinged with any of the modalities, goodness, passion, or ignorance, particularly though passion and ignorance, then it expects sense gratification and pursues it. And then after some time, it's habituated to that. And it's a lot harder to come out of the habituation and the habit patterns that we develop, the mind, that get us entangled in the material world in the first place. So when one comes to the awareness of the importance of controlling the mind, then the Bhagavad Gita recommends uh, 
regulating oneself and also taking a step-by-step -step approach to the process. So, in the 11th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, no, excuse me, it's the fifth canto, it's the 11th chapter. There's only 17 verses in that chapter. There's a description by the speaker that the mind has some basic elements that engage with the material world. We have five knowledge-gathering senses, and they have their counterparts in the world. Underlying each one of our knowledge-gathering senses, like the nose and taste, or the tongue and the tongue and the nose, to be parallel, there's what's called the tanmatra, or the interface that allows us to connect to one of the sense objects in the material world. For three days, I lost mine, which was important for me. It was very interesting to see how subtle it was. The nose is there, but the smell isn't. And I was thinking how interesting it is. It's like software. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter what your computer does. You just don't connect. Engineers, go ahead. You can appreciate that. So, so with these basic senses that we have, the, the Srimad Bhagavatam says, the counterparts for that are unlimited. For instance, take scent. How many scents are there in the world? Well, you just cut right to the answer, didn't you? Unlimited. It starts off by saying, does the Bhagavatam, that they, they're expanded by uh, 10, multiples of 10, then 100, then 1,000, then a millions, and then it says, then it's unlimited in the combinations and permutations of smell. But you can take that to the unlimited conclusion that it comes to with all of the senses, and therefore the Bhagavatam says, our entanglement becomes complete in the material world because we pursue all these varieties. What's more, Krishna helps us. So this is something that we all know because we've read many times the first canto, second chapter of the Bhagavatam, right? Everyone knows all the 34 verses. And one of them says, Asao gunamayer bhaver bhuta sukshmendriyamabhi which is that Krishna is our facilitator when we come out at the beginning of a new creation. He's there. He said, I'll be your facilitator for this experience. And through the material nature, he allows the living being to be uh, f fulfilled or try to fulfill himself by interacting with all of these varieties in the material world. And all of that takes place in, through the agency of the mind. So the mind becomes fascinated by all this uh, variety in the material world. But uh, the Bhagavatam says 
the living entity develops a false sense of intimacy with the material world. It's called mamatam. It means this is, this is my place. These are my things. These are my people. These are my loved ones, etc. Mamatam. And it's a false sense because you don't get to keep it. And it's ephemeral. It's constantly moving and changing. So it causes a problem. So in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna therefore says, Yehi sam bhoga evate Abudha, an intelligent person, doesn't pursue this kind of sense enjoyment because he or she knows it has a beginning and an end. It starts and it's over before you wish it was over. And then you can't get it back the way it was the first time. It's very difficult. A frustrating situation. There's a different kind of happiness that comes from engagement with spirit, specifically the Supreme Spirit, Krishna. Ramate yoga noyanante satyananda chiratmani iti rama padenasu rama padiyate. Which word am I missing at the end? Yeah. Parabrahma padiyate. Thank you. Who said that? We just needed a param. Thank you, Prabhu. And that is that the, the yogis seek pleasure from Rama. That's one of the names that we chant, Rama. And I said earlier, it's the source of all pleasure. Rama is the source of all pleasure. And the name's the source of all pleasure. They get unlimited pleasure from connecting with Rama. So that's, that's the yoga part. So this mamatam, or feeling of connection, intimacy with the material world, is uh, a mis- it, it's a mistake. And I quoted the verse, uh, that, and I'm just going back to it now. Yehi sam sparsha Sparsha uh, means that um, we try to use the senses to touch the objects in, in the world, and you keep touching different places. And then Krishna says, that's a source of misery. In fact, he puts it poetically. He said, it's the, the, the womb of misery. From that womb is born misery, actually, is what he's saying, from trying to touch everything and enjoy it. So devotional service, or the way of uh, controlling the mind and overcoming this seemingly unlimited, um, uh, these unlimited attachments, to the varieties, is to transfer that sense of mamata to Krishna and the variety in the spiritual world. Otherwise, there's no happiness whatsoever in the material world. In the uh, Yoga Sutras, there's a story of a great yogi who kept himself in the mode of goodness for... Ten times, uh, ten, ten full creations. One full creation cycle is 311 trillion plus years. So how many lifetimes do you have within 311 trillion years? Do the math. And then times ten. So <laughs> he was famous, famous yogi, uh, Jai Vishabya. Vyasadeva tells the story, and he says that... He was renowned for having been such a powerful yogi to keep himself 
in the mode of goodness. And then there was another sage who was actually embodied only in the, ta- in the Tan Matra. But he took a physical body just so he could come interview Jai Vishavya because he wanted to know something. He wanted to know from him, out of all the lifetimes you've had, did you have more happiness or more distress? In fact, as Patanjali describes in the Yoga Sutras, there's a way in which yogis, because their minds become very still, can look inside and see their previous engagements with the material world. Just like reading a newspaper. Like, you could look and see, like, what happened in 1940? You could pick up any, any page and notice, that, oh, that's where, all these lifetimes. He could look back and he could see 311 trillion times as many lifetimes as there were times 10 <laughs> and see uh, what was I doing, how was I feeling, and so forth. It's all stored in there, in our subtle body. No extra charge for the storage fees in the cloud. And so he said to the sage, he said, actually, I can tell you I didn't have any happiness at all. And the sage was a little incredulous. Uh, No happiness at all. How could that be? You've been in the heavenly planets. You've spent time with other great sages. And he said, it's all, the Jaivishavya answered, it's all because the the happiness one experiences uh, through the mode of goodness, which is the highest mode here in the material world, compared to Brahman or spiritual happiness, is insignificant. It's not even considered happiness. It's considered a source of distress. Even touching the subtle elements here in the material world, it's a source of distress for those who know what it, what it means to, that we're spiritual beings. We have nothing to do with the material body or the material world whatsoever. A sango hyayam purusha. We have no sangha here. So that's the problem. And therefore, the process has to be taken up by the living entity to overcome this attachment to the material world. But many people, yogis, philosophers, have tried to give up the material world and, and not been successful. We find in the Ramayan the story of Rishishinga. And Rishishinga was born into a peculiar family. His family was, well, his father was resolute in keeping Rishishinga, his son, as a brahmachari. Pardon? Quarantine. Yeah, he was on lockdown once since he was born. <laughs> not only... A brahmachari means someone who uh, grows up, it's a student life, and one doesn't interact with women. Or if he does, he's very careful and sees them as uh, venerable to him and, you know, as fixed. So this practice of brahmacharya amongst yogis is, uh, gives one great uh, mental power. So this Rishishinga's father didn't even allow female animals to come near the hermitage. <laughs> and, so, and so it turned out that this boy was growing up so it was such power, spiritual power, that 
people sought after him. In fact, there was a king named Romapod, and he was having a drought due to some kind of curse he got years ago. I know this is getting complicated, but it's coming somewhere. And he, Rompad Marsh, needed to have Rishishringa come there because he's so powerful and auspicious that if he just set foot there, it would start raining. So, like, how to get him? He's protected like a fortress around this ashram. His father always protecting him. Nobody could go in there. But they found out his father was on a schedule. He had to go out to get fruits and roots and do other kinds of chores, and he'd come back. So while he was away, they arranged to send in some heavenly nymphs. You know what a heavenly nymph is? Very beautiful young woman. And so a group of them went there uh, just to entice Rishishinga. So when they came, now he was used to Rishishinga. He was trained in the Vedic uh, etiquette, so he thought they were sages, like other rishis that he had met in the forest. And his father was away, so he saw how his father would greet everyone. Please come in, He'd wash their feet, and uh, greet them with all gusto. And so as he was uh, entertaining them as a good Vedic host, he decided, I really like these rishis a lot, <laughs> more than other rishis I've ever met. And gradually became so attached to these rishis, although he was fully dedicated to his father and basically imprisoned there, although he didn't really know it, uh, these nymphs said, well, hey, why don't you just come back and check out our ashram? You can just come with us. And he's, okay, I'll come. And so they, they allured him away, and he got on their boat and went back to the kingdom of Maharaj Romapad, minus a few details I'm leaving out. But when he stepped foot on Maharaj Romapad's land, the rain came and the, the drought was over. My point here is that throughout the Vedic Shastras, there are many examples of artificial ways in which people tried to control the senses. Let's uh, make a fortress. Uh, the Srimad Bhagavatam says, Yet pada pankacha palasa vilasya bhakta karmashrayam gratitam utkartayanti santa tadvanna rikta matayo yatayo pirudha shrotoganas tamaranam bhajavasudevam. That in cases where one tries to artificially hold back the powerful forces of nature coming through the mind, they may be successful for some time, but because there's still a knot of mamatam in the heart that this material world is mine, then when that powerful wave comes, they get dragged away, and they can't help themselves. However, yet pada pankacha palasa vilasya bhakta, there's such a joy in hearing about Krishna and seeing Krishna and hearing his names and also interacting with the variety of the spiritual world, which we know is there from the Bhagavad Gita because this material world is a reflection of the spiritual world. And we therefore, uh, therefore those people who become enchanted with Krishna, with all of the aesthetics of the spiritual world, they're not swept away because they have a ground to stand on. 
And interestingly enough, in Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's teachings to Srila Rupa Goswami, he uses the same word mamata. When he's describing how an advancing devotee feels about Krishna, and the word is mamata. Krishna is mine. He's mine. I, the, we, you know how attached you get to your loved ones, right? Yes. You better say yes. yes. Okay. That's a mamata. These are mine. In fact, the Bhagavad Gita starts off like that. Dharmak kshetre, kurkshetre, samaveta, yuyuksava, mamaka, pandavaschaiva, kimakurvat. Jucharasya is at fault here, he's saying. How are my sons doing and not the sons of Pandu? This is a disqualification. Uh, in fact, uh, this bias towards the material energy disqualifies people from being objective. Okay, so... There's, there are various ways in which, now I'm going to talk about how to control the mind. The first is the process of chanting Hare Krishna. And some of the ways that those who chant Hare Krishna begin to become attached to Krishna and think mamata, Krishna is mine, are that they think Krishna is my protector. If you actually think about it philosophically, as Narada Muni asks us to do, you'll notice that no matter how hard you try to protect yourself, like, what are some of the ways? Starting with insurance. And how many different kinds of insurance do you have? You haven't done an inventory lately, have you? Let me help you out here. You have fire insurance, or you better. Earthquake insurance, meh, better have it, but... It's not going to do a lot of good if your house gets leveled. Um, then you've got flood insurance. Do you? What else? Health insurance. Life insurance. Better get term life, not whole life. Talk, talk to me later. Uh, <laughs> dental. That's hard to get. If you got dental, I'm moving in with you guys. Okay. <laughs> You could go on for a long time mentioning the different kinds of insurance and various ways we try to protect ourselves in the world. Narda says, did that help out? How's that working for you, he says. And basically, it really doesn't, ultimately. You do the best you can here, but ultimately, Krishna's our protector, and he's also a maintainer. Mamata, he's the one who's protecting me. He's the one who's maintaining me. And this is the first practice that... Chaitanya Mahaprabhu recommended for developing this feeling, transferring over from the intimacy I feel for the material world to intimacy I feel with Krishna. It's very in intimate to think like this person's my sole protector and my maintainer. And when we chant Hare Krishna, we're basically saying, oh Krishna, oh energy of Krishna, please engage me in your service. And so uh, in his uh, purports, the fifth canto, 11th chapter, Prabhupada says that you should use the, the weapon of service to cut down your attachment to the material world. And this is, it's recommended to have a spiritual master who's gotten instructions from a spiritual master 
and then has service, and then you can get some of that too. Say, okay, I'd also like to have some service passed down to me, and no matter how small it starts, or insignificant it seems when it starts off, it'll grow and grow, and that'll become a mainstay of your life that helps to control the mind by being absorbed in service. So concerning that, I was thinking the other morning that I don't, I wrote this down at the top of my pad, sort of when I was walking from one room to the next, but it, it's, it's an indicator of the kind of ways in which we uh, transfer our allegiance from the material world to the spiritual world. So this is what I wrote. Please don't mind, it's about me, but I just was, this is what I was thinking. I don't want what I want. I want what Krishna wants, and I want, and I want what Krishna gives me. So those things, I was thinking, actually protect one from the idea of mamata. So I don't want what I want. In other words, when the mind comes up with something that this is what I want, it's like, okay, but what about what Krishna wants? If, or I should say, the more one transfers one's idea to what can I do for Krishna, what does he want, rather than what do I want, then the more we're on safe ground with the mind. Because actually, in that case, there's a reciprocation and a natural happiness that comes. Jeev Krishnadas, Avishwas, Korlator, or Dukonai. We don't feel any uh, unhappiness when we move into the mode of service to Krishna. And uh, we can also, as Krishna recommends in the Bhagavad Gita, when it comes to chanting Hare Krishna and considering Krishna ours, we can consider Krishna our friend. So Krishna says this in Gita that he's the suhrit within the heart. And if that means the best friend. He stays with us within the heart. And if you consider that he says, I'm the best friend, then you'll be peaceful. Shantim Rishjati. Give him a mic. You can amplify. Okay, a couple more points. And the next uh, Prabhupada mentions is under the category of Sama. You have to make the mind equal. And I'm just going to talk a little bit about this and then we'll take reflections. Sama means equal. So this is important and the way it works is in the Bhagavad Gita, in the subject of tattva. Tattva means thatness. Like tat means something that actually has its has a nature. And you can identify it and put it into a category. So like nasato vidite bhavo, nabhavo vidite sata, ubayora pitushnon tastwanayos tattva darshibi. Those who are tattva darshibi means those who can see categories properly and put things in the right category. Uh, they see that there are energies that are illusory. They're constantly moving and changing, and there are energies that are permanent. And therefore, they're known as tattvavit, or knowers of the categories. And they don't make the mistake of engaging with the energies that are inferior, and that are constantly changing. And so, my point about sama, or being equal, is that when we come to the point of understanding the categories of energy, 
everything in the material world's in the same category. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, as in just a simple example, if you're if you're put in prison, and then they offer you the um, luxury cell, or the medium cell, or the uh, worst accommodation they have to offer. Solitary, yikes. Um, that's torture. So you're still in prison. This is the point that the Bhagavatam makes. There are heavenly sections of the universe. There are hellish sections of the universe right in the middle. We get a little bit of both. And so, Narayana Paraksarve, Nakutashchana Bibditi, Swarga Pavarga, Narakeshu, Apitulyarta Darshana. A person who's sama or sees categories think the whole material world's the same thing. And that doesn't matter high, low, or whatever kind of embellishment you put on it. It's the same category of energy. So to me, same. Same, same. And therefore, they don't get uh, disturbed by the varieties in the material world because they see that it's all one category, one tattva. And they're only interested in the category that has to do with Krishna. Final point. Uh, I was thinking about when people who are judges uh, or prosecutors recuse themselves. Do you know about this? Okay, a recusal. Why do people recuse? Recuse means to challenge, remove a judge, juror, prosecutor as unqualified to perform legal duties because of potential conflict of interest or lack of impartiality. That's why they get recused. Two reasons, conflict of interest and impartiality. So the disqualification for somebody who's trying to practice spiritual life is lack of impartial, impartiality. We're, we should be impartial, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, to all the energies of the material world. We have to work in them methodically, but dispassionately. We have to be sama and control the mind. And we are, we are able to do that by seeing the category of energy. And conflict of interest. This is my last point. What is conflict of interest? I think that my desires are more, and my plan is more important than Krishna's. And so if you just switch that and say, I don't want what I want, I want what Krishna wants, then you're in luck because <laughs> that'll work and the other one won't. So uh, if you don't have a conflict of interest with, with Krishna, then you, you become qualified. That's how you become qualified. And as soon as you have a conflict of interest, you have to recuse yourself from the process of knowing anything, teaching anything, because by the power of the, by the fault of being partial, then you're mistaken in the way you present. Okay, let's take a few reflections. Yes. Hare Krishna Maharaj. Thank you for the lecture. Maharaj, I was wondering how do we know what Krishna wants? Just read the Bhagavad Gita. So in the Gita, Krishna says, 
Manmana bhavamad bhakto. Just think of me. So just organize your life around that principle to think of Krishna. It's just no secret at all, actually. And, you know, he makes other suggestions. Patram pushpam palam toyam yomi bhakti prayachati. That's called easy because he said, get me a leaf. Could, any leaves available? Yeah. <laughs> They're expensive though, right? Not so much. That's the point. It's available anywhere at any time. He's giving us easy things and say, just think of me, offer me a leaf. Or just get a, a flower from somewhere and you can offer it to me. That's what, that's what Krishna recommends. Yes. So in the beginning of your lecture, you were talking about sense control and mind control. And um, my question is, if you are um, bombarded with sense objects and you want to control the mind and you don't want to give in, uh, if you habitually um, abstain your mind from going for that sense object, does that become a permanent thing in your yoga practice? What do you mean a permanent thing? Like if you, um, you're you're bombarded with all these things that you really feel like going for, but you're restraining your mind and senses for going for that. And if you keep habitually abstaining, 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 does that become your permanent habit in your yoga practice? Well, it can. I mean, some people dedicate their lives to that, especially the gyanis, because their idea is that if I cut off my connection to the sense world, then I'll be able to isolate myself from the material world and I'll realize my Brahman nature and then I'll, then I'll be free. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, after some time being in an airplane, probably after 12 hours, then you say, I want terra firma, I just want to walk on the ground again. <laughs> we can't uh, tolerate having no variety and we can't simply abstain from engaging our senses. Therefore, we sing, watch everyone come running in. You know, we sing this song before Prasadam that Krishna is so kind, he doesn't ask us to abstain. He gives us the nicest food there are. I mean, what's the happiest time of your day? Mine's breakfast, lunch, snack, any time. I'm like, okay, now I'm happy. So... But it's prasadam, uh, and that's what uh, that's representative of all the practices of bhakti. In fact, there's more sense gratification in bhakti than anywhere else. I mean, look at the the, the sights and smells you get. I mean, we've withheld a few things because of the pandemic, but generally, you know, people are passing flowers around. There's incense everywhere. There's oils, you get smeared on here. Here, drink this, eat that, everywhere. Uh, sights, sounds, pictures, aesthetics of all kind, music. It, it's an unlimited sensory, spiritual sensory overload from the spiritual world. And, and so when one becomes uh, bombarded, actually, with spiritual sense gratification, then you, you just don't have any space for the other stuff, which is really dry and insignificant. We've had this experience many times. 
We go to Los Angeles. I helped near Kula for many years, still do, I hope, uh, cook for the Rathiatra Festival. So she's there for a week cooking. I come in for a, f a few days and just absorbed in the kitchen. On the block, you don't have to go anywhere except be around the devotee community in Los Angeles because everything's there. But I just remembered I'm driving off the property then afterwards going to LAX to fly home. God, it's still going on out here? And it's so dry. And we're walking in, garlands on, and, you know, pockets full of prasadam. People are going, what's that you're wearing? Oh, this? We wear these all the time in the spiritual world. And what do they get to wear? A little badge around their neck that says, this airport owns me. And I got to show up every day. <laughs> like in the Delhi airport, before I fly out, I always take a stack of books and I walk around and I you know, distribute books in, the, in that big lobby there. And uh, some of the workers, they're really interested in talking to me, but they're kind of afraid looking around. I said, what's the matter? And they said, they watch us. And he, they said, we can't sit down. They don't allow us to sit down while we're on our shift. That's what you get. Sorry, I digress. Okay, one more reflection. Yes, Tori. Thank you, Rajan. How can we remain impartial to the material energies without becoming complacent to them? Yeah, that's a good question. We, we become impartial by knowing tattva, or what the categories are. So the material world um, is a certain category of energy, and if we understand what the result of interacting with it on the level of sense gratification is, and we're aware of that, then uh, we're forewarned, and therefore we're careful. Meanwhile, we have another way to think of it, that it's paraphernalia to be used in Krishna service. So those who have that impetus in life to use everything for Krishna are not casual about how they interact with the energies of the material world for two reasons. One is they know that the material world's dangerous and in every any time the, the mind like a wild animal can become reattracted. Like a story my Father read me when I was a kid about some boy who caught a raccoon or the raccoon was lost and then he raised it and it became his best friend. And then one summer night when there were the call of other raccoons, his pet raccoon jumped off the porch and ran into the forest and was gone forever. <laughs> so the, the yogis know that the mind can be attracted to the call of the wild at any time, so they're careful. So they think, it's all under control. He's tame, you know. It's like, hey, where'd he go? <laughs> he went back to the forest. Heard a little raccoon cry. So uh, they're careful. And they, at the same time, they're dutiful because they see that everything is connected to Krishna. So they're more careful about the way they interact with people. For instance, in the Gita, Krishna says that a wise person has respect for every living being because... The yogi, he or she sees that Krishna is in the heart and therefore sees people as walking temples, actually. 
and therefore is respectful and not just humans, all, all life. Like people trash the earth because they don't see any connection to anything. First of all, they don't see any causality that if I dump oil down the a drain, you know, it's, it's going to go in my drinking water eventually. They don't get that. Everyone lives downstream, as the bumper sticker says. Second of all, they don't see that everything comes from a divine source and it's all sacred. But devotees see like that. So although they have respect for the way the material world works, they, they also um, worship it because they see that it's Krishna's energy. So they interact with people in an enlightened way and, with, and then with the material world. I'll give you an example like, uh, you know, because I've seen both sides of that. When I became a brahmachari uh, out of high school, actually I didn't even finish high school. Don't listen, kids. Cover your ears. <laughs> uh, and, and I became a brahmachari. When I went back and read some of the letters that I wrote my mom and dad, uh, I cringed a little bit later on, when I became older, about the, how um, sort of straightforward is a really kind word I could use for my, the way I put it, to people so it wasn't, I, I wasn't interacting in the most enlightened way because I had very tender faith and beginnings. But um, later on I could see how I was able to develop a really deep friendship with them. And, um, you know, be connected with him on a spiritual level later on. That was a pretty convoluted answer, but I hope there was something in it for you. <laughs> Malini. Hi, Kishamini. Thank you so much for the wonderful class. Uh, one point that uh, really struck me was that um, with, the, with the weapon of service, you can cut down the material attachment. And um, and that is how you control your mind. So I felt this was the most satisfactory answer I heard, how to control the mind. Yes. And, you know, I've always, when we read that verse, mm-hmm. you know, cut down the tree of material nature. I was thinking, wow, that's, what do you mean? Uh, but when I read this yesterday, and Prabhupada said, the weapon of service. So that's what we're armed with. Anything we come into in, in the world, when we think of it as service to Krishna, uh, as Krishna says himself in the Bhagavad Gita, Brahmanyadaya karmani sangam takva karotiya lipite nasapapena padma patram ivambasa. You don't get smeared. You don't get smeared by the material nature if you're armed with service. And you also don't, you, you aren't vanquished by the, the laws of nature if you're going with service. Prabhupada gives an example that the elephant has a really hard time swimming against the current of the Ganges. Have you ever tried to swim across the Ganges? Don't do it. It's really strong. And however, a little fish just darts around. Why? Because he's surrendered to the water. He's built for water. So when we build our mind for service, the powerful modes of nature can't touch us because we're not of the world anymore. The world's for controlling. And if I adopt a, the mentality of service, then I'm streamlined and I can just move everywhere without getting touched. Lipyate nasapapena, you're not smeared by this 
ugliness of the material world that I'm attached, okay, you're, imp you're partial, and therefore you're at fault. You get blamed, you get the karma, it all stacks on you now. So you give that, you become impartial by seeing everything for service. Good point. It's one of the, one of the most important points for controlling the mind. And the, and the most important, however, is to chant. So we're going to end with a little kirtan. Please come take prasadam.